These are the tribulations of Paulette. The scene is Fellini-esque. What Dolly's celebrity chef ex-husband Jason is doing in our neighborhood and why he just vaporized into the woods behind Bertie and Howard's house is anyone's guess. Old Sport Bunyan, cloaked in tweed with an upturned collar, bounces on Bertie and Howard's lawn like a sprite with the exploded milkweed pod that we removed like an atom bomb from their living room, mistaking it as we did for a killer bee's nest. Dolly returns from the edge of the woods behind the house, shaking her head. What's going on, I ask. Dolly replies that she's been texting and calling me for days, trying to tell me that she had set up a drug and alcohol intervention for Jason in an empty house that she's got the listing for right across the street from Bertie and Howard's. Once inside, Jason was confronted by a This Is Your Life brain trust that Dolly had rounded up, consisting of maitre d's, sous chefs, his mother, and Bunyan. It seems that the runner-up of People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive issue needs a few weeks at Hazelden. Late nights out on the town in international hotspots lend themselves to addictions, but I always thought Jason's biggest problem was that he got so famous so fast he didn't know how to cope. $400 chef knives were more often chopping blow than Spanish onions. The latest scandal was a page six post-coital Instagram shot of Jason in a bar and a hot tub with two naked Korean girls, his latest obsession. He used them as equal parts nanny and arm candy. Heavily accented 20-year-olds named Tam or Kim were always calling Dolly during custody weekends to say, Jason not home, and one of the kids was... Sick in toilet, I call 911. The empire that Jason had built up on $50 hanger steaks was in danger of overcooking, and Dolly, eager to continue alimony and child support payments, decided to take matters into her own hands. It didn't go well. The woods behind Bertie and Howard's house aren't very deep, so Jason won't be that hard to locate when he eventually emerges, slinking along Route 9 eastbound in his chef's whites. Dolly apologizes to Bertie and Howard for the intrusion in their yard. Bunyan then pulls a golf pencil from behind his ear and tells everyone, you know, people, this is really good material, great stuff, and he starts to scribble in a notepad. I look quizzically at Dolly, who informs me that she has bought Bunyan an iMac so he can write a screenplay about her and Jason. It'll make millions, Bunyan assures me. Old Sport has morphed once again, this time as Old Scribe. Dolly and Bunyan, exhausted and in perennial need of drinks, depart for lunch at her club. Bunyan puts his arm around Dolly, and as I watch them walk away, I wish Bunyan had vaporized, too. Back at home after this bizarre morning, I can't help but feel envy toward Bunyan as I shout out another round of stains in everybody's underwear. Now that Bunyan is an aspiring screenwriter, I can categorize his rise from Nantucket Jailbird as meteoric. Next, he'll want to direct. He doesn't do laundry, his golf game is looking up, and he's got a sugar mama. 
How does he do it? My midlife crisis is no more than a stall on the road to nowhere, complete with panty liners. Maybe I'd like a pied-a-terre over somebody's garage where I could swill bourbon and write screenplays, meet a lover or two. But no, I've built up these walls around me that are just as much of a prison as the Bill Ricca House of Correction. At least Bunyan had his day in court and was eventually freed. I'm capital punishing myself. Those dinks in Guantanamo can kiss my rear. Before the prison guards arrive with my last meal, however, I must report to my gynecologist, Mike O'Neill, for a procedure known as the endometrial biopsy. Because Dr. Mike looks like Jude Law, getting ready takes hours. As I'm going through my pre-exam prep ritual, I look at myself with the pity that you'd give a homely kid. Three kids and gray hair does not become the female anatomy. Angry Russian Rosemary is the only human who loiters around down there, and that's only because she's on the dole. Dr. Mike's new office is undergoing renovation, and he's temporarily housed in an ancient wing of the hospital. The exam rooms are paneled in dark brown. The floors are spotted linoleum. It's like Frank Booth's apartment in blue velvet. As instructed, I put on a Johnny and go into the tiny bathroom to take a pregnancy test. There's no way, I tell the nurse. You never know, she tells me, and I say, listen, I've been pregnant at least three times, and I'm telling you, I'm not pregnant. That's a famous line around here, she says. I can respect that, I say. But unless there's a chance that my conception was immaculate, I'm telling you there is no way that I'm pregnant. Just do what we ask and we'll be the judge of that, says the nurse. In the tiny bathroom, doing as I was told, I hear Dr. Mike's voice quite clearly coming through the wall from the adjacent exam room. Morbidly curious, I incline my ear to the wall. This will only take a minute, he says. Then, quiet. Dr. Mike speaks again. This might pinch. Two seconds later, I guess it pinches, because the poor gal on the other side of the wall with Mike's head between her legs lets out a blood-curdling scream. An explosion of hot urine goes everywhere as I leap from the toilet seat like I've been shot out of a cannon. My cup runneth over, all over. But never mind that, I've got to move quickly. Vlad the Impaler has made a mark in the adjoining room, and he's coming for me next. My hands shaking, I whip off the hospital gown and put my clothes back on. There's no one in the hallway when I let myself out, and I'm not going to knock on any doors to announce my departure. Dr. Mike's going to be upset, but I'll make it up to him. Chances are I don't have uterine cancer, and chances are that the procedure I inadvertently overheard was an endometrial biopsy. I've got two blessed hours before carpool. When I get home, this calls for a nap. Drifting off to sleep in mid-afternoon is one luxury this prison affords. Dreamland finds me in a car, somewhere in France, headed for the shore. I'm in the back seat, having an intense makeout session with none other than Dickie Poulier, the rich old Washington lobbyist with the missing molars I used to date before I met Dave. I wonder why the car keeps swerving right and left until I realize that there is no one in the driver's seat. 
Dicky, I say, and as I start to push away from him, I notice that he has snaked his very long and somewhat elastic leg between the driver's side door and seat, and that his black wingtip foot is steering the vehicle. In the passenger seat, to my surprise, sits another man looking straight ahead. I recognize this man as Dave and try to get his attention. Honey, turn around, I say, tugging at his shirt collar. You're kissing another man, Dave says, and he won't look at me. Dickie is still writhing on top of me and steering the car with his foot. I continue to kiss him, keeping one open eye trained on Dave. When we have to stop for gas and Dickie hauls his club-footish leg out of the car, Dave turns around. But in kooky, dreamlike fashion, it isn't Dave facing me at all. It's Ted. He leans over the seat, takes my head in his hands, and I wake up, quite jarringly, to a ringing cell phone. Hello, I say, struggling to resume consciousness. Paulette? Sweetie? It's me. I need to see you. The voice on the other end belongs to the real Ted, and I'm not dreaming anymore. Music for this podcast is written and performed by the very cool, very talented Mr. Eric Fontana. Next time, an unwelcome visitor to a picnic in the woods. Till then, ta-ta. Ta-ta.